0: Please pray with me. Voice of God, we do pray that you would come and inspire us this morning. We pray that in these words to come, at some point we may hear your word, something that speaks to our hearts, something that we can take with us for this week so that we can become better disciples of you and of your son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, this morning we continue with our sermon series, these life hack tips from the patriarchs. Our chance to go back to the book of Genesis and see whether these ancient texts, these texts that are several thousand years old, have anything to say to us today in 21st century Houston. Again, the first week we were looking at hospitality, then we were looking at what it means to be rejected. Last week we were, uh, in a more lighthearted way, getting some uh, marriage and dating advice uh, from the patriarchs. Today, we shift gears yet again. Today we have some new characters coming on the scene, new patriarchs. Today we are introduced to Jacob and Esau. You know Esau, right? He is that. Jock in uh, high school, the guy who was uh, the best athlete uh, in the whole school. One of those people that, at a very young age, clearly uh, went through puberty early, had testosterone raging, and was overly hairy. (laughs) The guy who likes to go out hunting, and he's the best hunter out there. You can see his father in the stands cheering him on as he scores the next touchdown. It's Esau. It's the popular guy. Somewhat impulsive, but you you know that character. Then there's Jacob. Jacob, the uh, kid who never liked playing sports when he was a kid. His parents would always sign him up for a new sports league, and he's like, no, I'd rather just sit on the bench and read my book. Jacob, the Jacob who ends up being uh, on the chess team in high school rather than on the sports teams. Jacob, the type of guy that looks really young for his age, even as he gets older, the person who prefers to spend time in tents with his mother, a true mama's boy. And then we have this scene, this interesting scene where Esau's out hunting, he's out doing his thing, uh, going for an all-day hike, but he didn't take his Boy Scout lessons very well, so he wasn't prepared, and so he didn't have anything to eat, and so he was just starving. You know the type of hunger where it, it makes your stomach just churn? You've been that hungry? You just get starving, and when you see food, you just want to devour it? It's always a bad idea to go to a grocery store when you're feeling that hungry. Well, that's how Esau was starving, and he goes, and he sees his brother, and he sees this amazing red stew, kind of like the stew you see on the front page of your bulletin. He sees this wonderful stew cooking, and he's like, he's so hungry, he's so gruff. He doesn't even say, I want stew. He's like, I want some of that red stuff. And there's Jacob, and he says, okay, just sell me your birthright. In ancient Israel, the eldest child was due by inheritance to have twice the inheritance of the other siblings. This is a big deal here. But of course Esau, he's hungry, he needs food. He's like, fine, what's my birthright to me if I die? Yes, give me that, uh, give me that stew. And of course Jacob's like, swear to me that this is the case. It's a crafty one, this Jacob. And Esau says, fine. He despises his birthright and wolfs down that stew. To be honest, neither of these uh, characters come across particularly well in this first scene that we see them. I mean, Esau, he's this impulsive guy who's casting away his birthright just for one meal. He's the man who seeks after immediate gratification rather than doing the smart play. Think of the implications that'll have for his family going forward. They could be huge. This is a big deal that he's doing here, and he does it without even thinking twice. Esau is not the kind of person uh, that we want to lift up as a model. And then we have Jacob, the great patriarch. His brother is coming in from the field. His brother is starving. What does he do? As opposed to be the kind, loving sibling, he cheats his brother out of his inheritance. If any of you have been involved, or no people who have been involved in inheritance disputes within a family, you know how bitter and nasty that can be. It can tear a family apart unlike anything else. And here's Jacob conniving to get that will changed so that he gets more than his brother. Jacob does not come across particularly well. I was was talking with a couple people uh, in the congregation this past week about this text and several different people said how this text just disturbs them. It's not what you want to see from your patriarchs. It's not the kind of human nature you want to believe in. It's just something's just not right. When you look at uh, Jewish commentators over the years, it's amazing how many uh, pretzels they've tied themselves into in order to try and make this text seem better, seem somehow more redemptive, to make Jacob seem to be the good guy, Uh, going so far as to say, well, since the blessing really was for Jacob, and since Jacob really was the person who was going to inherit, it was okay that he cheated his brother out of his inheritance, right? Right? And there are certain commentators who go out of their way to make Esau into this really evil monster character so that it was totally okay to cheat him out of his inheritance. But all that's just rationalization because you don't want to face the reality of what the text has right there. We have this deep-seated need as human beings to see other human beings as being fundamentally good. We want that. We want to believe that our fellow human being is a good person, that we're good people at our core. We want to believe that if you do good, good things happen, that if you do something wrong, then you pay a penalty for it. We have this innate sense of justice that makes sense to us. We, we really desire this to happen. I mean, if you doubt me, go watch a movie that has an unsatisfactory ending, and then hear people's comments afterwards. Never pleasant. I remember, but, like when, but when the ending's great, think of how wonderful it is. You're like, yes, this is the way it should be. I remember when I went to go see Slumdog Millionaire uh, way back, uh, maybe it was 10 years ago now, and it came out in December, and I was in Cambridge, and it was in the middle of a snowstorm, and I, you know, went, I was in a horrible mood, went two miles through a snowstorm to go see this movie, and it ends on, even though it has a lot of hard things to deal with, it ends on such a happy note, they're even dancing at the end of the movie. They even dance. And I was like, yes, I was on cloud nine. It's like, that's the way it should be. As many of you know, I I, I wrote this uh, novel, which, um, yes, I'm still editing. (laughs) But I gave a draft last summer to my mother to read, finally. My mother reads it through. And her big complaint was that the ending, the bad guy doesn't get punished enough. She just was like, how does it end that way? I'm like, well, mom, I'm trying to be realistic. She's like, I don't want it to be realistic. I mean, you, you turn on the news, if you still watch the evening news, I think some people still watch evening news, uh, if you still watch the evening news, they always want to include those human interest stories, those little bits of good, so that you can believe that, that, that that's really the way the world works. That's also why we build up heroes We have this capacity where we keep doing it, where we build up a sports figure or a politician or some other major figure to be his hero. We put them on the pedestal because we want to believe in that. We have this deep-seated need to believe in that because the consequences, the alternatives are so bleak. What if that's not the way humans are? What say humans are actually like Jacob and Esau? It's an unpleasant world to live in. This is particularly significant for liberal Christians. Liberal Christians theologically. And that is because liberal Christians um, are those who believe primarily that we're saved in a so-called moral atonement theory. So we're saved by following in the footsteps of Jesus. That's the way we're saved. Not through some blood dripping down from a cross. We're saved by being good people. Um, Now that depends upon us having free will and us actually wanting to follow Jesus and having, the be, and having the ability to do so. Let's say human beings actually just aren't that nice. It has big implications. But you know, I look around the world and I do wonder about human nature. I know no one wants to dwell on politics and I don't want to dwell on politics. I do that too much anyway. I know really slashing there. Um, but One thing that's so remarkable today is just how nasty things have become. There's this side of human nature that's come out that is kind of scary to see. You see people scapegoating those on the margins because they can to rile up their base. You see uh, people's sense of tribalism have a level that i've never seen before i mean i've i my family i I, as i've mentioned before my family is a split political family and since we're from the northeast we love arguing (laughs) about everything uh, especially politics and this is the first time in my life that i am actually scared of when we go gather together in new hampshire in a few weeks what's going to happen it's the first time where i'm actually concerned about the political discussions we're going to have because things have gotten so bad The darkness of human nature is just coming out for all to see, and it's not pretty. It's easy when we live in comfortable uh, places, comfortable life circumstances, uh, to believe in the goodness of human beings. When things are going well, it's very easy to say, oh yeah, human beings are good. It's not so easy when things aren't going well. When, say, uh, you face long stretches of unemployment, financial difficulties, difficulties at home, When there's a threat to someone in your family, your kids, when there's a threat to your country, your nation, your tribe, your people, this can bring out the darkness of human beings. It can be pretty ugly. When you look at the founders of the U.S., they did not have a rosy outlook on human nature. They saw human nature like Jacob and Esau. That's why our government is set up the way it is. They did not like democracy. Because the people have a tendency to run after demagogues. Someone can promise them things, and they'll go, oh, yes, let's just all go en masse to that. So our our Constitution was set up to prevent democracy because the founders of the country were so steeped in Calvinism and so steeped in the lessons of the decline of the Roman Republic that they feared democracy. And yet they also feared people who had power. And so they put limitations on the office of the president, limitations on Congress, uh, that famous checks and balances. The reason why our government is set up that way is because our founders believed that human beings weren't that nice. <laughs> it, was in that, it was in that culture, but now we live in this culture where we don't, we don't want to face that. We want to try and believe that things are better, but aren't they? You know, Historians keep looking into some of these great heroes, but it's interesting when you start digging a little bit deeper in these heroic figures that there's always, they end up being just People. <laughs> Uh, Thomas Jefferson having a long-time affair with one of his uh, slaves and having children by her. Um, Or you see Martin Luther King Jr., uh, who uh, apparently was a serial womanizer. We don't like to read these things. We like to keep our heroes on our pedestals. But the problem is human nature is like Jacob and Esau. The famous 17th century political philosopher Thomas Hobbes uh, wrote his masterwork, Leviathan, Um, which many of you, I'm sure, have read or at least familiar with. And what he was trying to do is trying to get at the basis for government, why governments exist and and how governments should be structured. And so what he did was he he tried to envision a a, a place where there was no government. There were no restraints. There was no police. There were no laws. It was what he called the state of nature. So he tried to envision the state of nature. And when Hobbes looked at the state of nature, he famously said that life in the state of nature... uh, is solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. Not nice. He's like, when you strip apart the things that are restraining human nature, human nature is dark and evil and bad and nasty, and people are nasty to one another. That was his like, baseline assumption that he built his entire system on. So he said, because, that's so, because the state of nature is so bad, what we need to do is we institute governments, we give up a portion of our freedom to the governments so that we can be protected from the bad parts of human nature. Thomas Hobbes knew Jacob and Esau pretty well. But you know, there's something else in the text. When we go above this story, a few lines above, there's this section that we find initially. The section where, again, again, Rebecca is, t- Rebecca is said to be barren. I love how it's always the woman's fault in the Hebrew Bible when I <laughs> uh, can't have kids. But the, uh, Isaac then prays to God that uh, she can conceive, and she does. And she has a very difficult pregnancy, <clears throat> uh, a very painful pregnancy. And so she prays to God, and God responds to her. And says that in her womb will be two children that will be at each other's throats. They will be warring nations, but they'll also be fathers of great nations. There's this extra element in the whole Genesis story. And that extra element is that the writer of Genesis actually believes in God. Unlike Thomas Hobbes, who did not. Hobbes was a materialist. And for him, without the presence of God, everything was, life was uh, nasty, brutish, and short. But for the writer of Genesis, even though human beings could be nasty, there was still God there. There was still this presence of good that would well up, that would make its its force known, that would make itself appear. God would show up, and when God showed up, then you could see that goodness coming through. through. If there's one lesson that we can learn from this text, a crucial lesson, it's to be very honest about human nature, to say, yeah, human beings are like Jacob and Esau, and, and just name it as that. Human beings are not always great. And we get ourselves into trouble when we expect human beings to be fantastic and then they disappoint us. Because then we go around being constantly disappointed. But if we see human beings as human beings, then maybe we can find something in ourselves to forgive them. And they can also forgive us. But what makes that whole system hold together is that we believe that fundamentally underneath it all, there actually is a presence of a loving creator. That there is that presence of a loving God that's there. And even though it can be hard to see it sometimes, it does come through and surprises us. I love that story of the uh, the <clears throat> war profiteer uh, who's a womanizer, who's someone who has a child out of wedlock, <clears throat> who, uh, you know abuser of alcohol, someone who uh, uses bribes this way and that way. Uh, I mean, he is, he is the, the walking embodiment of your worst parts of human nature. And somewhere in the midst of this guy's life, uh, something changes. And he ends up being the instrument in saving the lives of 1,200 people, even though it costs him most of his fortune in order to do so. And this was such a Well-known story. They wrote a book about it and then even a movie uh, all about Oscar Schindler. These things can happen. God is there. Even when human nature can be bad, God can still be present and poke through in certain ways. So let's make sure we learn from the patriarchs. Be realistic about human nature but never lose sight of the fact that God is there and can support people, not just other people that might do bad to you but even you when you might do bad to them.